Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Food allergy is an important public health problem. It affects children and adults, and it can be severe and even life-threatening. Over the past two decades, its prevalence has increased dramatically. Who among us doesn't know a child or an adult with a severe food allergy? The exciting news is that recent research suggests that a food allergy, such as peanut allergy, can be prevented which we're going to discuss. And for those already with severe food allergies, treatments are now available. My guest today, Dr. Anna Nowick-Wegerson, is well known in the allergy community as a leading researcher and clinician in the field of pediatric food allergy. She has spent most of her career at the Jaffe Food Institute in Mount Sinai in New York City, where she worked alongside Dr. Hugh Sampson, one of the giants in the field of food allergy research. This past September, she moved downtown to become the Director of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Hassenfield Children's Hospital, part of the NYU Langone Health Systems. Her other notable credentials, she's the Director on the American Board of Allergy and Immunology, a prestigious board, and she's also a Deputy Editor of the prestigious Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. In addition, Dr. Noak Wigzrin and I have had common patients over the years, and I know that the mothers and the children who she's treated adore her. <clears throat> and with that introduction, I welcome Dr. Anna Noak Wigzrin to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. This is a really a tiny introduction. I'm very excited to well, um, be well, here with you. Well deserved. Well deserved. I may be calling you Dr. Anna, just to make it a little bit sure. easier yeah. <laughs> during the podcast. Okay, let's get to the first thing. We're going to build up to the, all the important things going on. But the first thing I want to talk about is prevention before we get into treatments for food allergy. And I'd like to know how you approach the key ways you prevent or you recommend that parents and children avoid a food allergy reaction. This is actually very timely now, too, because we have uh, Halloween, one of the, the most fun holidays in the year for children, coming up in two days. So what do you recommend when parents come in and, and they start telling you their child is allergic to peanut uh, or nuts You know, when they have to go out in the real world and deal with this? So, so you're talking about preventing the reactions. Yes. We're not talking about preventing, you know, development. No, not to that yet. No, I want to talk about. I'm just so about... mitigating, right? Like, yeah. what's the best approach? I mean, y- you know very well, right? If you see those patients, you've yes. talked, you've talked to them. How big of an impact uh, this diagnosis has on the entire family and their, their lifestyle? So, it, it sets some limits, and and you have to be careful. I mean, you you do have responsibility to check everything that goes into your child's mouth. And, you know, Halloween is particularly tricky, you know, no pun intended, time mm. <laughs> uh, for, for those patients with food allergies because it's so exciting and there is a lot of, you know, commotion and 
you know, it's hard to sort of keep uh, keep track on it, but it's also dangerous, right? Like it's it's really a lot of um, you know potential uh, problems. And so for for Halloween, for instance, you know, there are some families that um, sort of follow the teal pumpkin project. Uh, I don't know if you. Heard, uh, I never heard of that. No. The, the food allergy research and education has introduced or sort of promoted this concept that there would be households that will not distribute candy but oh. will distribute toys. Oh, okay. um, and then even, you know, if there are no teal pumpkins, you know, in your community, you go trick or treat with a child, but you have a deal, you know, so um, the child will get treats, you know, as every right. other child. But then when you come home, you trade it for safe treats or you trade it for toys. Like you know, like we, we really try as much as we can to be safe and, and careful and, and really protect the children. At the same time, we would like them to have an of normal life and enjoy uh, all of the fun uh, events you can participate in. So, you know, there are strategies, there are ways around it, but but the bottom line is, you know, just have to be very vigilant and you have to be creative. I mean, that's why this is so difficult. This diagnosis is so difficult because you cannot really let your guard down. I'm sure you've seen this too. And I guess, I don't know, maybe it's just the location where we are, but I feel like sometimes the food allergy children are very lucky to be born into having some amazing parents and especially mothers because some of them are incredible in their vigilance and how careful they are. But it, it is a challenge. I, I know also too, do you sometimes tell them to avoid like certain restaurants like Chinese food where, again, you don't always know the ingredients or... Yeah, absolutely. This is right on target because, um, you know, there's certain situations will be high risk, right? And, uh, uh, for instance, you know, restaurants where you don't, there's some language barrier and then they're known for using certain ingredients and they're, right. you know, known for, you know, sort of cross-contaminating using the same utensils. It's not worth it, you know. Right. It, it's just too much of a risk to go to a place like that. So you can go out, but you have to be vigilant and you really have to do your homework and sort of find out the places that are safer. But you can never just assume, you know what I mean? Like, right. unfortunately, that's what it is. Like, every time you, you know, out, I had an out. attending once, a very interesting guy. He was actually board certified in dermatology and allergy. It was an unusual combination back then. It was very interesting. He had an allergy to mushrooms, which is, again, not the most classic one. And you know what mm-hmm. he did? It was interesting. He used to carry around these little tiny cards. And when he would go to a restaurant, he used to give it to the waiter and ask them to give it to the chef. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it seemed maybe a little extreme, but, you know, I guess they just have to be, like you said, ways to figure out how do you manage in this world where you're trying to fit in and yet avoid ending up in the emergency room. So, so I, I mean, I wouldn't say this is extreme. This is, I mean, you know, there, there is a spectrum of food allergy and, and there are some patients for whom cross-contamination will be a trigger for a serious, potentially life-threatening reaction. Right. There's some others who are not as sensitive, but in general... When patients go to the rest or, you know, kids or adults with food allergy, we always recommend talking to the chef because, you know, like how busy restaurants are and, you know, the cards are great. But unless you talk to the chef yourself, right, like you really don't have a guarantee that this card actually made its way to him or her and they really read it and paid attention to it. So, you know, sometimes I even really advocate for just talking to the chef, not to the waiter, just talking to the chef or talking to the manager who can be, you know, just more responsible. I have to admit, Um, though, a lot of restaurants now, I I would say so much more than in the past, even the waiters are so terrific about coming out, do you have any food allergy? They're they're, they're asking that proactively, which, you know, is is a nice thing considering the environment. And, And you know what's interesting? I've been in practice 25 years, and 
I'll never forget, you know, you never forget like your first patient or two. And my first mm -hmm. patient was, that was referred by a pediatrician was a severe peanut allergy and tree nut allergy child. And it was such a different time back then. I, I felt so bad for this young boy who ended up turning out to be a terrific young man. But he had to, when he went to school, he had to sit in a separate area than all the other kids. He had to grow up really, like he went, couldn't go to parties. It, you know, it was just such a different time than it is now. So I think we've come I, a long way and yeah. there's more to come. That gets me to move on to our next thing, which you started to allude to, and I definitely wanted to ask you about. And it's something called the LEAP study, you know, about preventing right. peanut allergy. I just want to take a second to mention to our listeners where this came up, because, and you'll probably explain it better than anyone. Mm -hmm. But the LEAP study, it's very interesting. There, uh, there was a British allergist, Gideon Lack, who I think he went on a trip to Israel and he was surprised when he was giving a lecture there, you know, asking the pediatricians, you know, how prevalent peanut allergy was. And the, the pediatrician said, we don't see that much of it. And he was kind of confused because in the population that he was seeing in London, it was much higher. And in fact, you know, he started to think about it, the Jewish population in Israel and in London, you know, they, can, they should have similar factors that would cause that. And he ended up designing a study that showed that, in fact, in Israel, the peanut food allergy was much lower, significantly lower than in London. And then eventually they showed, I think it was the Mount Sinai group, that was much lower in Israel than in New York. And they started thinking, what was the difference? So I'm going to let you explain a little bit about the LEAP study and, and what they found. And, and, and the most important thing, Dr. Anna, is that also that parents and pediatricians understand that, not just allergists, because they're the ones on the front line of this. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Dean, because, and it's a great story, right? Isn't it a great story? It is, uh, it is so interesting. How, a, you don't always need a double yeah, like, blind to understand something. I mean, just see what's happening in the real world. Right, and, and you know, like, you, you just, uh, it's a clinical observation that right. led to this, you know, amazing uh, study. So he hypothesized that uh, the reason why there's so little uh, peanut allergy uh, in Israel, and, and, you know, I think what's important to point out is that, though, you know, he was comparing very similar populations right. of, you know, Jewish populations were living in Israel and, and London, was the, other than geographic location, was the, uh, the um, you know, introduction of peanut, because in Israel, peanut is introduced very early in the form of a corn puff, which is covered with peanut butter dust. Um, and it's like sort of equivalent of our Cheerio, right, so basically, right. you know, low choking hazard, you know, risk, and and it's you know it's ubiquitous. It's very it's very popular. Right. So right. Um, and turn out that in the UK, you know, peanut was uh, delayed. The introduction was delayed um, beyond three years of age. And so he thought, hey, you know, why is that? And uh, he proposed this dual exposure hypothesis, where he said that. Food allergies are, in general, much more common in children who have bad eczema, severe skin disease. Right. So he hypothesized that exposure through the skin, you know, to the food on the on the parents' hands or in the household dust will promote development of allergic um, disease as opposed to eating the food early that it will promote tolerance. Like when you think of it, you know, really eating the food is a is a very powerful mechanism of tolerance because the majority of people you know who eat the food have no food allergies so it's really an aberration that you become allergic through eating but if you don't eat the food and at the same time you're exposed to low doses you know through the environment you're much more likely to develop you know allergies so 
with this in mind, they, you know, he proposes Brilliant study, which is a huge study, which was sponsored by NIH, by International Tolerance, Immune Tolerance Network, uh, and Food Allergy Research Education. And they found that children who were at high risk for peanut allergy, which were, you know, their specific criteria was severe eczema or egg allergy, and they were fed with peanuts starting, you know, at the median age of seven months, they had 80% lower risk of developing peanut allergy um, compared with children who avoided peanut until the age five years. So it's huge, it's you know, huge. like 80%. Huge. This kind of result was truly amazing. So, well, as, and as you know, too, what, what was so flabbergasting was that this is like the direct opposite of the dogma of avoidance at all costs. It was really the exact opposite, and I think that's what really blew people away. <laughs> so I think so, but you know, when you think of it, right? Like, it makes like, sense. So if you could really close somebody in the bubble, right? Like they would avoid perfectly. But also, studies from you know from his group showed that there is food peanut in the dust in the right, household, right. Like in the kitchen, in the bed, in the bedroom. Right. So you know, it's impossible to provide you know perfect avoidance. You would have to really isolate the child, like you know, some kind of a artificial space to, to really protect them from being exposed, you know, through, uh, through skin contact or through inhalation. So I have to just jump yeah. in with that thing too, because we're going to get to this later on with some of the treatments. But, you know, when I give lectures about, you know, sublingual immunotherapy, which is my area of expertise, but I show a slide of a picture of actually of an Indian and the people are looking, why does he have a picture of an Indian up there? <laughs> and it's because they were the ones originally also who found that the way to avoid poison ivy which they used to get from being in the leaves and the you know in the you know in the mm -hmm. jungle was by actually licking the leaves, and those yeah. were, that was the population that was the most tolerant. So yeah, your point about taking it through the the oral gastrointestinal system is not typically something that should make you allergic, but it's the topical. And I know I think even your group too has shown that there was always concern, possibly even soaps or shampoos that kids were getting exposed to early on that have now all these, quote, natural ingredients, which could be oh, tree yeah. nuts or peanuts or whatever else they're putting in there to make it smell good, could be sensitizing these kids. Well, in general, like when you have a kid with uh, with bad skin disease or, or any eczema, you shouldn't put any, you know, like the, the le less is more. So you right. should stick with very simple ingredients, very basic stuff, no perfume and certainly no no food ingredients right. like oils. And mm. um, because because if you have somebody who's at risk, you know, has a lot of inflammation, you know, in the skin, putting that food on the skin may actually predispose them to allergy, like, you know, almond allergy or coconut allergy. That. So that's a real, you know, it's a real thing that, that we should be counseling patients about. You know, it's interesting, too. I also pointed out to patients once, too. I used to tell them, you know, being very careful about topical things because I, I used to say to them, do you know why there's no topical penicillin cream? And I know you know the answer to this, but it's like yeah. it, was, it was so sensitizing that if patients right. put it on their skin for a cut and then they had to get an injection or an oral penicillin, that's a way right. you can induce, you know, anaphylaxis, you know, severe allergic reaction. So, yeah, Absolutely. these are really important points. So, so what are you telling then, you know, again, because you're obviously an expert in the area, but, you know, again, it's the parents and the, and the pediatricians who are typically following these patients. I mean, most allergists are not seeing patients at four or six months of age. They're in the pediatrician's purview. What, how are we educating them I mean, is it really on the parents' side? Is it the pediatricians that are saying, okay, Johnny has eczema, mom, we should start making sure, you know, uh, we introduce peanut, you know, through, a, you know, some form to his diet? Is that how, 
Hopefully this is going to play that's out. How, that's how what we should do, right? I mean, like, I, mm. I don't think, like, we've uh, disseminated the guidelines and promoted the, yeah, that's you a know, problem. the yeah. official guidelines for early introduction of peanut because there are guidelines from the National uh, Institute of Allergy and, uh, and Infectious Diseases that recommend, you know, early introduction between you know, four and six months in those, to those kids at, at risk. And I think like we didn't really do a good job with that, like communicating mm. with pediatricians. I think like there's still a way to go to help them, first of all, to to accept the guidelines, because sometimes I feel like they are a little bit apprehensive about right. you know, changing, was... changing the guidelines, sort of, you know, right, because they're worried, degrees. right, this is going to change right. a few months from now, oh, they're going to come up with something different, right. they're afraid, that's a great point, they're afraid. and yeah, no. I think also, too, they're probably a little bit worried, let's like, think of the scenario, you have a mom that's got maybe two older siblings that are peanut allergic, and now she's got her third one. Of course, now she's very vigilant and she's worried. And now she's saying, well, okay, now the pediatrician's telling me that I should introduce peanut early, but is it safe? Should this younger one now be skin tested or blood tested? What, what would you say if you were training pediatricians that they would, should do for that Okay, so I would say listen to the to the parent, okay? Because if the parent is uh, apprehensive and the parent is uncomfortable with your recommendation, it's not going to happen. Yeah, that's so true. your best option is, you know, either send a patient to the allergist who can test and do skin tests. You can draw a blood test, you know, right. uh, to test for peanut IgE. But even if you do the test, I've had situations that families are still worried. So actually you have to do a food challenge to introduce the peanut to those infants. But they will do it if you help them. So I think like this early, you know, like really providing support for the early introduction, you know, like this is our job, the allergists and the pediatricians, you know, if, if the parent, you know, accepts the recommendation and they're comfortable with it and they're going to go with it, this is phenomenal. This is the best. And that's what we aim for. But if they're worried, they're not going to introduce the food. And I know it, you know, from my experience that from different types of allergies, you know, if the parent feels uneasy, uncomfortable, they really need need to do this under supervision. That's where we come in as allergists. We that can provide sense. a feeding, you know, supervised feeding and, and sort of show them, okay, this is safe. And then they will do it, but not, you know, just sort of letting them go and, and, and you know, do it at home. So, so, so there's a lot we have to do, you know, as allergists yes. to really yeah. make, implement the guidelines and, and really target this, you know, very vulnerable group of infants. And, you know, especially, but those parents, you know, who have older siblings, uh, Dean, they do understand what's at stake here. Right. You know, like it's, they it's, it's are, life-changing. They, they, yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they would do anything to, to get a chance to prevent this. Yeah. But older siblings, you know, like in the, well, there's a lot of sort of details, but I know the worry, it wasn't necessarily considered as a very high risk for, you know, developing of peanut allergy, but it is a risk. So, yeah. But but even with all you these kids, you have to listen and respect. Right, but it, even in you know again, those are, I I point out like sort of a little bit of the exceptional case. But again, you know, eczema is fairly common in the population, and for probably a variety of reasons we may get into later. But even if the pediatricians could feel confident saying, okay, here I have a child with eczema. If on top of that egg allergy, this is a child we really can change his life if we introduce peanut early on and maybe other tree nuts or whatever. Right. You know, again, the studies are showing that like in Israel, 
this can make a huge difference. No, it's uh, it's very important. Super yeah. important. Uh, I want to move on to testing because then we'll eventually, who of our listeners, don't worry, we're going to get to treatment, but we're, we're doing this progressively <laughs> and we're, you know, obviously building up the climax here. But I want to talk about allergy testing. You know, I'm also a little bit of an unconventional allergist and, and doctor in a lot of ways, but, and also a bit controversial. But when I give lectures to pediatricians, family practitioners on screening for allergies, I tell them that I do a lot of blood testing. And for a couple of reasons, I mean, I know that allergy skin testing has been around literally for about 100 years, but I'm the kind of person that also likes to feel that um, we progress and that, you know, obviously medicine gets more, um, you know, more scientific. And, you know, with testing for food allergies in the blood, I find there's a couple of things that you can achieve that you can't with the skin. Obviously, with skin testing, there's variability on who's interpreting the tests mm -hmm. and the blood testing now. You know, in fact, we have what's called, as you're familiar with component testing, which actually really breaks down which are the dangerous proteins in a food. So I just wanted to get your thoughts about, you know, again, if you're seeing a child in the clinic practice or what you're, you know, again, recommending, you know, again, also a lot of primary care doctors are doing testing now because, they, you know, again, with less allergists being trained, et cetera. So what what, do you, what are your thoughts on, you know, because I know it's it's a big, sometimes it's a political thing among the allergists, but what do you think about blood versus skin testing? So so I, you know, because of the nature of the practice, I utilize blood testing very uh, frequently. Oh, good. I mean, almost all, all the patients get the blood test, but, but this is uh, complementing, you know, the skin testing. So I think both tests are, um, you know, give you a slightly different information. I mean, they both measure IgE, to the food or, you know, to the, I don't know, pollen or animal dander. But uh, what you, the information that you get from the blood test is really, you know, how much of that Ig there is, the, the test is more standardized, and then you can test for the components. So, right. you know, sort of get this granularity, right? And, uh, but, but it doesn't give you the information about the function of the antibody. So the skin test, you know, if it's well done, like, you know, if you, if you trust the Right, the person doing the It actually technique. gives you the, you know, it's a bioassay. So it gives you, you know, the information. And I'm sure you've seen patients that have very low uh, specific Ig in the blood test. But right. when you put the, the skin test, it just blows up. And those are the patients who have history of, you know, anaphylaxis to small amounts, et cetera. So I think both of them are, are very helpful. I mean, and, and both of them, you know, have to be interpreted with caution by somebody who's really an, you know, an expert, an expert in yes. because you can actually do a lot of damage by over or under diagnosing, you know, like if, if you do a test and the test is negative, but the patient has history of anaphylaxis, you don't tell this person, oh, you're not allergic, you right. know, right. just go and eat this food right. because your test is negative. You, you, you should go a step farther. You should provide, you Absolutely. know, a food challenge to really clear yeah. this diagnosis because they want to put this person at risk. So there there are limitations, but I think the blood test is very, you know, very helpful, very useful. Starting from that, you can take it anywhere. And, and obviously you can do a test on a baby that's horrible eczema or somebody who is not, doesn't cooperate with a skin test. So I'd say both tests are helpful. And, you know, hopefully when, let's say, basophil activation test becomes commercially available, like skin test is a bit, you know, like, basophil activation right, test, but right. it's a muscle-based test in the skin. So it gives you the functional sort of relevance of the uh, of the antibody, of the environment in which this antibody is performing. So I, I do both of them, but this the blood tests are very helpful yeah, you in, know, in my experience, yeah. my opinion. No, yeah. I, I agree with you. That's why I said I'm a little bit of an unconventional allergist. Like a lot of time, most of the time I'm doing blood testing. And you know what's really interesting? I, and I can remember 
about 10 or 12 years ago, I was at a lecture by Dr. Hugh Sampson, who was giving a lecture to the food allergy moms. It was kind of interesting. I was like one of the few mm -hmm. doctors there. But one of my uh, friends who had a son with peanut allergy told me about the conference. So I said, I'd like to go. I want to hear what he's telling the moms. And at the time, he was talking about the peanut proteins uh, called ARAH1, ARAH2, and ARAH3, which I know you're familiar with. And I found it fascinating at the time. It really wasn't very widespread. And now, again, pediatricians, any doctor can order it. It's part of what's called the You Know Peanut Test. Right. And I find it super helpful. I actually wrote an article about this because the studies that have come out pretty extensively that if you are positive to one of those three proteins, and specifically the ARAH2, you have an extremely high likelihood of being peanut allergic. And, you know, I found that I usually don't, feel like patients have to have to have food challenges. Um, you know, again, the studies seem to be confident enough that you are positive. And I appreciate what you're saying. I, I think the also the reverse that you were talking about, there were some prominent allergists that came out in the last few years who said they were very worried that food allergy was overdiagnosed. And I think what they're really alluding to is that patients were, quote, called sensitized, meaning they showed a positive test, but didn't actually have that food allergy. And I think that confused the public a lot. You know, and I, I spend a lot of time explaining to my patients because sometimes also I'll do blood testing or skin and they have a lot of pauses, but they'll say, oh, I can eat that. It's not a problem. So I'll tell them it's a sensitization. Do you agree with that approach? No, absolutely. I mean, that's what that's what I mentioned, yes. you know, before when I said about the dangers of, you know, sort of uh, the testing. Um, well, there are certain situations that you you don't test the patient. Like if you know they have eaten the food, you know, many times, there's no reason to suspect that it, they they would react to it. Uh, then it's sort of irrelevant what the test shows. I mean, there are Correct. you know they are tolerant, and this is like the whole premise of you know like what we're doing with desensitization, right? Like those people have high levels, but they're eating the food and nothing happens to them. So here we go. Here's the proof. So right. I, I think that really like this all sort of principle of, you know, you have to put a lot of thought into deciding about testing. You have to be very judicious. Right. Who do you test? What do you test for? And then how do you interpret? Because I think like you have the responsibility, you get the test result, and then you have to really advise the patient what it means and what do you do with, what right. do we do with the test? And that, that's sort of, you know, that's, that's like an initial stage. And then you have to go, you know, take it a, a step farther, you know, like, okay, do you eat it or you don't eat it? Is it real or it's not real? And if you are worried, then you do a, you know, you do a food challenge. That's the sort of the step, the farther step we can do at this time. Yeah. I was just about to get to that. You, you segued perfectly into this because I wanted to ask you, when do you think food challenges should be done? Um, and should they be done in allergist offices or at, at hospitals? I also, you know, what's interesting, and I know your extensive experience in doing this at Mount Sinai, and, and that's something I don't have extensive experience because really in mm -hmm. private practice, you know, we really try to avoid that. I, I can only imagine it must be very traumatic to the children, you know, having to eat something that they may have a reaction to. So I'm just curious your experience, like how judiciously food challenges should be arranged and what should be the milieu exactly where it should be done. Right. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. So we are already offering challenges here at NYU um, okay. in the clinic for like lower risk challenges as well as in the hospital environment for the higher risk and for the specific kind of food allergy, which is called the uh, food protein juice colitis syndrome. Mm -hmm. So, so you know that there there is a decision process 
when, when you consider food challenge. I mean, there's some patients that you that you will not challenge, okay, unless they're participating in the clinical trial. I mean, you're doing something very special for them. Those are the patients who have history of anaphylaxis or, you know, have very, very high um, specific IgE levels and, and, and you think, you know, their risk of reaction is really, really high. Then most of the time for clinical purposes, those would be the patients that you, you don't really have the need to confirm this diagnosis, right? right like, you right. know, they're allergic. Exactly. Um, but... Although, you know, like different countries, like in Germany or Netherlands, they're very, very, you know, sort of dogmatic and they say everybody should get challenged. If they don't have a stir of reaction, you know, there's if there's 1% chances that, you know, this is a false positive test, you should challenge. But, you know, in the U.S., in this sort of environment, that, that's not how we approach it. We really, when, you know, we think like we're the 95% certainty that the this test is really confirming the diagnosis, then we don't usually offer the uh, feeding test. So when do we challenge? Well, we challenge when we are not certain if the food has caused the reaction or if we know that the child has had a reaction, so it, he or she uh, were allergic, and then we're following them over time and we're seeing favorable changes in their test results, you know, suggesting that they may be outgrowing. Because fortunately, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the allergies are going away. I mean, they're, you know, like milk, egg, you know, wheat, soy, as kids get older, their immune system matures and, and they can overcome those allergies spontaneously. Uh, but And you're even, measuring that by their specific uh, immunoglobulin, their IgE? Is that what makes you right, more confident? Right, okay. right. So you're looking at skin tests, you're looking at the, at the specific IgE concentration in the blood test. And if you see, you know, changes, progressive changes or even like dramatic changes from year to year, then it gives you like a really, you know, like a signal that, that you should start thinking about reevaluating this allergy is active or, you know, is it gone? And then sort of depending on the on the patient history, right? Like if you have an asthmatic who has a history of reacting to a small amount of food and now has very favorable test results, you probably wouldn't feel very comfortable doing uh, the challenge in your office during a very busy day. Exactly. So this would be something right. that you would rather you know, refer them for like a special, more more supervised um, situation or like a special food allergy clinic or, you know, the hospital, uh, which admittedly is not so easily you know, available. Not too many places offer those high-risk challenges. Yeah, I think that's great. You mentioned that. I, I would, for my own patients, definitely refer them to you and your clinic. I think that's great because, again, I always felt right. You're exactly right. In a very busy practice where you don't have, you know, enough staff to constantly watch and observe, there's risk there and the kind that you don't want to take. And of course, also making sure you have all the different kind of foods prepared and the amounts. It's it's almost like no, having it's, a, it's like having a kitchen. <laughs> yeah, no, it logistically can be quite yeah. um, you know difficult. I mean, yes. you have to have the right setup. And again, like doing low risk challenges, like you know somebody you think right. that has a right. chance of passing, but you don't feel comfortable, just right. or the family doesn't feel comfortable at home, yeah. that would be a great candidate for office. Yes, no, that sounds terrific. All right, we're going to move on to treatment, which I know a lot of the listeners really tuned in for because everybody wants to know the bottom line, and I'm excited to discuss this with you. There, Right now, there are two food allergy treatments that are available. Both of them are, I guess at this point, off-label FDA, and one is on the verge of being approved, a third treatment. So I'd like to go through with you, Dr. Ann, if we could, a couple of the treatments that are available. I know you have a lot of experience with them in the research trials that you guys have done. I'm not sure if you've done them in private practice, but let's start with the oral immunotherapy for various foods like peanut, I guess, egg and milk. What, what's your, your take, the risks, the benefits, the real-life implementation? I, I do know one or two colleagues in New York who are doing it in their practice. It's very intensive. They have been successful, fortunately, in, in desensitizing patients, but 
What, what's your opinion on the oral immunotherapy? So, um, I, I, do you have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to give you about five no, minutes on this. In a nutshell, um, yeah. it, it's an option for uh, for a certain patient population. And I'm really happy that this research is being done and that hopefully we'll have an FDA-approved product for peanut oral immunotherapy. But as you pointed out, you know, this is not a a piece of cake. It's a it's a big, big commitment. It's a pretty intense treatment, um, and uh, it's a daily treatment that the parent that the patient takes at home for extended periods of time. At this time, this is really the the one of the most sort of advanced approaches to to treatment. And you know, it's it's smart. It utilizes the natural sort of the oral tolerance development in the gut, so the natural pathways. So you know, it makes sense from, from that regard that that's how you are trying to break this uh, allergy. And uh, it's, it's a difficult process. It's associated, you know, can be very rewarding in a way that it will desensitize the patient to the point that they wouldn't react to small amounts, um, you know, like cross-contamination, accidental exposure. So it, it reduces the risk significantly. So let's say if you can ingest an equivalent of one peanut every day, then you sort of eliminate, you know, reduce the risk by 95% of having accidental reactions. So, you know, that, that's important because the, the, the studies are mostly done uh, in children uh, because the parents are very motivated and, and really want to keep their children safe. So the goal that we as physicians, we would like to cure the patient, but really the more, more immediate, the more modest goal is to, you know, protect them from anaphylaxis. So you can accomplish that, like, you, you know, uh, relatively low-dose immunotherapy. And then over time, the sort of the expectation, the hope is that at least for a subset of those patients, we could reach a point that we could consider them, you know, cured or permanently tolerant. But this would be, you know, years after, you know, starting this process and, and years after taking the doses on a regular basis, um, yeah. potentially daily. So. Yes. It's associated with side effects. Uh, there, there could be um, acute reactions, you know, anaphylactic reactions, but more common are, you know, gastrointestinal discomfort, nausea, um, vomiting. Fortunately, it goes away for most children or most patients, but some of them just really are miserable and they stop the treatment. So it's a, it's a very exciting time. And as an, you know, somebody who has been, who has been dealing with food allergies, I'm, I'm very looking forward to this kind of a treatment uh, being available uh, widely. At the same time, I do acknowledge that this is not a treatment for everybody yeah. and not for everybody because of the practical reasons, you know, how far do you live from the office? You know, yeah, what yeah. is your school schedule? What is your work schedule? It, yeah. Can it's you very, really... yeah, it's very, it's very intense. I'm going to summarize for the listeners and you can dispute yeah. it if you want to. My bottom yeah. line on oral immunotherapy is that it works. And in fact, I have a, a, a friend, a colleague in Connecticut, at the New England Allergy Center. I think they've desensitized over 500 kids to uh, peanut allergy, which is great. I think the negatives, which are significant, there are lots of adverse reactions in the process of doing it, you know, and talking to these doctors. And there are some long-term side effects too, as you are familiar with the eosinophilic esophagitis. So if it was the only thing that we had available to uh, the kids, I'd say, you know, again, it's a very personal decision among the parents whether to do this and it is an option. But I guess for myself, there might be something better. And that's where I'm going to just bring up, and again, I want your thoughts on sublingual food allergy immunotherapy. This is something that I've introduced to my practice based on the work of Dr. Wes Burks and Edward Kim, who were originally at Duke and now 
at the University of North Carolina. Dr. Kim, in particular, has just published a recent study showing that, that um, children that were on the sublingual food allergy drops were able to tolerate, in some cases, after a couple of years, three peanuts, and some even up to nine on this very low dose, which I found fascinating. You know, and, and also it's been used for a lot of other foods and some other practices around the United States. So I wanted to get your take on what do you think the sublingual food allergy immunotherapy fits into the arsenal of treating for food allergies? Right. Oh, it was a great summary, Dean. But um, and, and sublingual, I think it's, it's it should get more spotlight, you know, like it really has a very favorable breakdown of the risks and benefits compared to, uh, let's say, uh, oral and uh, epicutaneous patch immunotherapy. You don't want to get to that uh, next. Because mm-hmm. the efficacy, you know, is quite good. I mean, it's not as good as oral immunotherapy, but the dose, as you pointed out, is so much lower. So the right. maintenance dose for peanut sublingual is 2 milligrams of peanut protein. For the peanut, um, you know, product that is under review by FDA, it's 300 milligrams. So, you know, it's a huge difference. Big difference, right. And then... And then the study that you uh, that you mentioned from Edwin Kim at UNC and Wesley Burks, they had 25% of the of the kids participating. They were able to tolerate the full dose of you know of peanuts, That's, 24 yeah, peanuts, huge. after three to five years of treatment. So mm-hmm. you you get you know a substantial number of patients who can tolerate the full dose, and of those. 80%, you know, we're still able to, to uh, ingest the same amount after stopping the treatment for two to four weeks. So that's great. I, yeah. I think it's really very uh, promising. You know, the other thing nice about it, too, is also you're just doing these drops. You know, I, I know from, again, with the um, the oral immunotherapy, you know, these kids also, sometimes they're told to eat like six or seven peanuts every day. And, you know, teenagers, they get kind of sick of that. <laughs> or especially something no, that they, ab- you know, it's, it's a hard thing. Yeah. All right. So I think, I think. Overall, I think the bottom line you would say is close efficacy, maybe not as exactly supposedly good as oral, but quite good, for safe. I mean, I think it was pretty impressive, too, in the Kim study. they did, I, And I spoke to him, and um, they didn't have to use any uh, epinephrine for any of the kids right. during the whole five years, which I think is pretty remarkable. So I think the safety no, profile is amazing, pretty, right? quite good. And uh you know, and I no guess it, esophagitis and no gastrointestinal Right. So, so, yeah, so. it seems like a lot of positives. But, again, sometimes like this gets overlooked because, again, it's not – obviously, it's not going to be a commercial product that's going to be mm-hmm. supported by the pharmaceutical companies. But let's get to one other thing, too, The which, again, I know you're familiar with because I think they were doing it at Mount Sinai, is the epicutaneous immunotherapy, which I, I think mm-hmm. is going to go by the product called Vioskin. Is that correct? Right, right. Peanut bioskin, yes. So tell me about that. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've read a little bit about it. I mean, I know that I think they're working for peanut, milk, and egg. Again, the thing that really threw me, though, Dr. Anna, was that, remember how we talked about earlier that the skin as a sensitizing mm-hmm. area of the body, how does this work to make somebody tolerant? Well, I mean, you certainly don't put this patch on the skin that is um, actively inflamed. Okay. So they have the, the, the I mean... It's not a new concept. I don't know if you realize, but 1917 was the first paper that introduced the concept of, of epicutaneous immunotherapy, which is really? done in a different way, mm-hmm. by cutting up the skin and putting the extract. So Ooh. we've made some progress. Yeah, then. really. But there is an up antigen, so, you know, the, if you put it on the healthy skin, sort of, you know, on inflamed skin, it is peanut allergen is being taken up by the skin. And because it doesn't have to go through the gut, where it's broken down and digested, you could use a very tiny, you know, small doses. So, for instance, peanut bioskin is 250 micrograms of peanut mm. protein per patch. Okay. So, you know, we are sort of scaling down, you know, from oral to sublingual and then mm. epicutaneous, you know. Yeah. 
you don't have to take it by mouth, under your tongue, you put it on the skin, but it's still a daily treatment. It's safety-wise, again, it's safer than oral immunotherapy, so, so this is great. And the one thing that also we should point out is that for the sublingual and patch, you know, there are no sort of lifestyle modifications that are required, which are pretty significant for oral immunotherapy. You know, like if you take the dose, you have to sort of wait it out. You don't want right, to go right. the, and do a lot of physical activity. Right, that was the hardest thing. You don't want to run, dance, you know, uh, walk. So, so, you know, like that's another piece of information that tells you that it has to be practical for the family, exactly. for, the, for the patient. Right. So I think each of those treatments really will be targeting a different patient population. And, you know, another thing about PATCH is that it, it really showed efficacy in younger age groups, so 4 mm. to 11 years old. And this may have to do with, like, with their sort of relative body surface area and the amount of the allergen that is being you know, absorbed. And it may, you know, it's currently being studied in babies, you know, 12 months mm. to three years. So hopefully it's, you know, so anticipate that efficacy will be higher and the safety uh, will remain as favorable. So, you know, it's each approach has pros and cons and, and you know, will yeah, appeal to a point. different subset of patients, I, I would think. Right. I mean, there's mm. not a treatment that is appropriate no, for everybody. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think that's great, a great way to, to look at it. And parents should be aware. What about also now this was interesting because I know some of the original work was done out of Mount Sinai about the, the biologics like Zolaire, which I found fascinating because, you know, Zolaire, as I know you're aware, is now used for chronic moderate to severe asthma in cases. It's also now been approved for chronic urticaria, hives. But originally, I thought they were looking at it to see if it worked against food allergy, specifically peanut. And, and then I think it, in some of the trials, it failed, so it went by the wayside. Is there any place for that, for food allergies, you know, that you could think Absolute, of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. um, so, so I, I don't know how much more time we have. But, we have a few more minutes. Um, we have 15 more minutes, 10 more minutes. If you have time, I, I think that it would be great to hear about this. Well, I, you know, like the, the first study of the monoclonal antibody against uh, IgE was done. It was a multicenter study, but it was done with a slightly different molecule, H901. And it showed efficacy in adults with, with peanut allergy. So basically just taking Zoller shots for uh, four to six months would like increase their threshold, right. the amount of peanut they would ingest without symptoms. But then, you know, Genentech, which is, which is the maker of omalizumab, currently available as a, you know, Zoller, wasn't really that excited about this, about food allergy. They were focusing on asthma and uh. urticaria. And there was a study which... They uh, initiated, but it was uh, it was discontinued prematurely, not because of the drug. It was because of the sort of concerns about the safety of food challenges or peanut food challenges that were done during the study. So it was never really accomplished. It didn't accomplish what, what it was supposed to do. But I can tell you that right now there is within the Consortium for Food Allergy Research, there is a big study, multi-center study of using omalizumab with multi-food oral immunotherapy because we're Omalizumab, you know, sort of goes in is, you know, it's obviously it's a it's it's an expensive drug, right? Right. It's up to ten thousand dollars a month. Wow. So, you know, just giving it as a monotherapy indefinitely to the patient, I think this would be justifiable for people who have history of, you know, like deadly reactions or trace amounts, you know, right. foods that are incredibly right. difficult to avoid, like, I know, milk, wheat, I know, peanut, of course. But this would be a small subset. So for, for other patients, you know, it seems from the from the clinical research, it seems that pre-treatment with Zoller and sort of, you know, using Zoller during the updosing, when you keep increasing the amounts of the food that are being introduced, dramatically increases the, the safety 
Right. And and helps patients achieve desensitization. It didn't affect the tolerance. You know, when you look at the tolerance, yeah. it didn't have this effect, but, but it does improve safety. And you, when you think of it, it, it does control asthma, allergic rhinitis. So all of those yes. comorbidities that are so common in patients with food allergy, and, and they also contribute to the side effects, right, like to adverse reactions during the treatment. Because if your allergic diseases are inflamed, they are active, then you're more likely to react to something that is being given to you. So yeah. I, I think it's very helpful. And you probably you also know about other biologics like dupilumab that is being yeah. actively studied, mm. you know, for peanut allergy right now as a mono treatment. So alone as well as in combination with oral immunotherapy for peanuts. So yeah, no, that's really interesting. Stay tuned. Uh, yeah, it, I think it's really exciting for patients. And, you know, it just brings up one of the, one of the really key points, which I, I didn't even think about that I was going to ask you, that, you know, it's not uncommon. It's going to get to the final thing that we talk about, that unfortunately these children with a food allergy, it's typically not just one food allergy, as you've seen. It's multiple. So yes. something like the, <laughs> yes. oh, you know, oh, I can't even say it, don't mix them, but whatever, <laughs> Zolaire, yeah. it's easier. You know, right. or what I'm actually able to do with the sublingual food allergies, I'm able to mix different foods in, which you can't really, I, from what I understand, do with the oral. Those are really important things because Again, so many of these children and adults typically do not have an isolated, it's just, you know, one tree nut or, you know, it could be sesame, tree nuts and peanut. And we they need some kind of magic silver bullet to cover their whole system, you know, to Absolutely. help them. But, you know, that's going to take us to our, our final topic, which we'll, we'll finish up with. I'm fascinated by this because I do, besides allergy, I do a lot of holistic immunology. And I'm interested, Dr. Anna what you think the microbiome holds for in people with food allergies and possible treatments. And I know that in some of the studies, it's very interesting for oral immunotherapy. I think in sublingual, they did also, they sometimes have the, the, the kids take a probiotic and they found that to be slightly more effective than just the treatment alone. So in your background, in your research, you know, and I know even at one time too, at Mount mm-hmm. they were looking even at Chinese herbs. What's your feeling about the microbiome explaining why we're seeing so much food allergies today? Well, I, I mean, there are two questions, right? Like yes. really the, whether targeting microbiome when you are doing immunotherapy for food allergy, I think it's very important. We just don't know exactly how to do it, how to do it right. But there was a study from Australia, from Mimi Tang, which showed that in, in younger kids, you know, using a high-dose probiotic really seemed to improve this adverse events, so reduce this frequency of adverse events, but it also seemed to improve the efficacy. But the study had some, you know, design issues. So right. we are right. waiting for the results of a bigger study that's now properly controlled. It makes perfect sense, right? Like we're trying right. to induce tolerance, you know, through the gut. If your gut is messed up, right? Yeah. And we know it is messed up because you have the, the abnormal dysbiosis right. uh, is associated, predisposes to food allergy. It precedes food allergy. It is associated with more persistent allergy. So, you know, it is very important. It's just the, the questions, how do we fix it? And, or, you know, how, how, how do we correct for it? And this is an area of active study. And, but, you know, for, for sure, like, you, you, we shouldn't be starting oral immunotherapy with somebody who has recently received, you know, a long course of antibiotics. This certainly would be, you know, doesn't make any sense. So we have to, we have to pay attention to details like that. And there's study at, uh, at Harvard with uh, Rima Rashid uh, look, looking at adults with peanut allergy and fecal transplant, you know, just trying like, wow. you know, so radically uh, to mm. alter the, you know, the gut microbiota in a, you know, very sort of abrupt way to just reset it. Yeah, I think what's really important, what you're pointing out, that 
antibiotics can really disrupt the microbiome. I think there was a really important study, I can't remember if it came out of Australia, showing that the children in the first year of life, if they had multiple courses of antibiotics, their risk of allergic asthma went up several fold. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I also think, I don't know what your thoughts on this too, you know, the whole thing about the hygiene hypothesis, you know, about, you know, making the microbiome more diverse, helps protect against allergies. I think the biggest factor that's increased food allergies in my estimation was probably the widespread use of antibiotics and especially even in the food supply chain. Because yeah, I know we feel it's a, right? Cause mm-hmm. we feel it's a mystery with, is it vaccinations? Is it this? I, I tend to really unfortunately point to the food supply and the use of antibiotics when I'm, when I'm explaining to patients. So yeah. now it's, uh, it's probably not a single thing, right? It's no. not a single uh, factor, but, but some of them may be more important for certain populations and, Clearly, like overuse of antibiotics and antimicrobials in our environment, right? Uh, and, That's another and point. And other right. changes in the lifestyle uh, certainly contribute to you know allergy, but not also allergy because look, we're dealing with the epidemics of non-communicable yeah. inflammatory diseases, right? And this also autoimmunity and inflammatory bowel diseases that are on the rise. So yeah. Yes. Well, Dr. Anna Nowak Wegerson, I I want to thank you so much. First of all, for your contribution to the field of pediatric food allergy, you really are. Uh, a huge player in that and taking the time to come on the podcast today because I know I learned something and I and I hope our listeners did as well too. So thank well, you, Dr. Anna. Thank you, uh, Dean. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity to share my thoughts and, and I really enjoy talking with you. Thanks very much. Okay, great. She works at the uh, at the Hassenfield Children's Hospital at NYU and stay tuned next time for our next podcast. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.